0: I'm most delighted to have uh, Teresa Fanken here with us tonight, and I also wish to welcome all the people in the room and those who are following via the live stream. I will introduce Teresa shortly after some information in regard to our lecture series on models. Um, This lecture series aims at exploring modeling practices from different fields and perspectives. It stems from the current ICI research project on models which started in September 2022, with a group of 11 international postdoctoral fellows who have their own model-related research in varied disciplines. The project on models will run until July this year, and the lecture series accompanies our project attempts to offer as broad a spectrum of topics as possible, and in particular, to address issues that are not covered by the individual projects of the scholarship holders. At the time of the announcements, we had very much hoped that someone from the field of architectural theory would apply, but after delving into Teresa van book In Preparation, which I can show, I realized how few people deal with the topic in the context of architecture, even though many consider it to be very important and exciting. Models fall into a number of categories. To quote from our project descriptions, uh, description, models are cornerstones in practice and theory. They stand for something else, and their effect depends on a specific relational quality. A model is always a model of or for something, and the relation to its object is reductive insofar as it is selective and considers only certain aspects of both object and model. How can one work with and on models in a creative, productive manner without disavowing power asymmetries and their exclusionary or limiting effects, end quote. These are questions that will be raised tonight and in the different lecture series to come. Until July 2024, 20, there will be six more lectures so in case you are interested not only in architectural models, but whatever kind of model-related issues, please keep an eye out for the lecture series on the ICI website, the ICI newsletter, or on our social media channels. Um, so the next lecture after Teresa's tonight is by Viktor Storkitza, The Nervous Statue on the Passion for the Myth of Pygmalion then followed by Lee Rayford on Kathleen Cleaver the American law professor and activist known for her involvement with the Black Power movement entitled When Home Is a Photograph Kathleen Cleaver's Album of Exile on 25 March Sven Lytken Models and Prefigurations on Predictable Worlds and Potential Histories on 29 April Katrin Maurer The Sensorium of the Drone and the Modelling of Communities on 27 May, Yala kizukidi Dreams of Independence, Radical Imaginings in 1960s Africa. And to conclude, 24 June, Gibson Cube, The Filmed Body as a Model of Understanding African Queer-Lived Experiences. Now to Teresa Pankhina. I became aware of her work through Andres Lepig, Director of the Museum of Architecture, of the Technical University in Munich, who 30 years ago wrote his dissertation on architectural models in Italy from 1353 to 1500. And I asked him if he could recommend someone who works on the more recent history of architectural models. He referred me uh, to the exhibition that had been shown at the Museum of Architecture, the D.A.M. in Frankfurt in 2012 called the architectural model, tool, fetish, small utopia, which was a world first of its kind. It has focused on the use of architectural models in the 20 and 21st centuries and was the first systematic exploration in what way architectural models were used to experiment. Theresa Fankhainel was the curatorial assistant at the time and is now an associate curator at the Illy and Edith Broad Art Museum at Michigan State University and editor in chief of the Architectural Exhibition Review. Her recent exhibitions include African Mobilities 2018, The Architecture Machine from 2020 to 2021, Built Together in 2021 and shouldn't you be working from 22 to 23? Among her interests are the use of technology and media for architectural design and the history, theory, and practice of architecture exhibitions. She has published two books on models, The Architectural Models of Theodore Conrad, which is the one I have just held up, um, and An Alphabet of Architectural Models from 2021. And she is also the co editor of another book on models, which is called, Are You a Model? The Outcoming of a Conference in Darmstadt, a collection of new research on analog and digital models, which will appear in June this year. The architectural model is close, but the final result, it is an anticipation of the built reality as a medium of representation and shares Obvious similarities with the building-to-be. It is spatial, three-dimensional as an object, and both visible and physically tangible. It is particularly impressive because it can be experienced haptically, though also the essential aspects of space, proportion, structure, materiality, the handling of light and the resulting character can hardly be simulated and depicted better than in the form of a miniature of an imagined and not yet realized architectural object. But what is it that the architectural model actually does? Design and ideas need to be communicated from the minds of those who conceive them in a way somebody else can grasp them Or rather, to create space in perceptible dimensions and between different dimensions. Architectural models help people who are not used to reading plans to understand them better. A model makes it easier and more reliable to grasp an overall situation spatially. How the model is built, uh, how the model is to be built, is often a lengthy decision making process. There are monochrome models that remain relatively abstract versus models that are made of wood with loads of details and inserted into a neutral environment. Here, the opposite effect is created. Does one want to remain conceptually abstract or leave room for new ideas, or should a concrete idea already be formulated? There is no evidence of architectural models as planning medium before 1350. They have ancient predecessors, house models that are around 4,000 years old and were used as grave goods or votive offerings, but cannot be directly linked to an artistic design or the construction of a building. While the first models were presumably purely illustrative, their proportional realizability became decisive at a later date. It is also only in the course of the 15th century with the development in perspective that correct scale seems to have become a criterion. There are very few models that have actually survived and traces of their use can only be traced back to the middle of the 15th century thanks to their mention in treaties literature. The fusion of an abstract physical framework or form and the living imagination of the representation for the purpose of creating an artistic design is by no means coincidental in such a work but is structurally significant for the history of the architectural model. In a larger context, the model can be the place where the planned building is shown in the making, an element of the production scene that invokes the being made by illusion or reference. I will now hand it over to Teresa. She has agreed to be recorded tonight and the talk and Q&A with the audience will be made available on the ICI website within a few weeks time. I would also like to thank the lecture series committee for the productive conversation, the fellows for sharing ideas and suggestions, and all my dear colleagues in this room who are responsible for the technical procedures tonight. There will be time to ask questions after the talk. Since we are recording, please wait for the microphone in case you want to raise a question. For those who follow us in the live stream, Please note that you can send short questions via the chat function and they will be read out. I wish you all an exciting and thought-provoking evening. There will be a reception upstairs in our roof pavilion after the discussion, and I would like to invite you all to join us there. Thank you and welcome to
1: Theresa. So like I said, I'm super excited to be here and I'm very excited to share some of the work I've done um, as part of my PhD. Uh, which I finished in 2016, but only appeared as a book in 2021, I believe. Um, So a lot of this research was actually done for the PhD. Um, I've called today's talk Analog World Modeling um, with the subtitle, Anticipating a Postwar World with Architectural Models. And I hope um, we'll get to that point in a minute. Um, I look forward to your comments and questions and anything else that might come up uh, as part of this talk. Um, And before I start, I wanna introduce myself uh, briefly, although uh, Claudia already did that very well. Um, I'm currently an associate curator at an art museum, um, but much of my work has actually focused on architecture and architectural history, um, and I'm here today as a scholar of architectural history Um, and preservation, which uh, this topic uh, touches on quite a bit. And like Claudia said, uh, one of my interests lies at the intersection of architecture and technology and how these two fields influence each other and how um, developments that happen in these fields influence the way we we work, we design, we look at the world in general. And uh, the books that you see here are just an illustration of some of the work I've done um, that kind of, for me, has uh, one thread running through it, which is the connection between architecture and technology. Um, so one of uh, the books that you see on the left was a big exhibition about computational history since the 1960s, and in many ways, uh, I think this will relate to tonight's topic as well, because models in architecture are obviously not just physical models, but also many other things, including digital models. So this talk today will focus on select aspects of the mostly historical research that I did for my PhD. Um, And that tells the story of uh, the quite unlikely discovery of an archive of an architectural model maker who uh, was active between the 1920s and the 1980s. Uh, Unlikely, especially because we don't really know a lot of archives of architectural model makers, and especially not dating back until the 1920s. Um, So that was quite fortunate, because there wasn't a lot known about this type of work until we got to look at this archive. Um, And so what this archive does, it it enables us to look at the history of models and the mechanisms of architectural history in general um, to include other players who are not architects, but equally as important in writing and creating architecture who are often not included in this history and so that's kind of to me what uh, this research did initially and then a lot of other things came came in um, especially looking at models as epistemological tools to envision as yet unseen uh, futures of a built environment as well as societal models that often go with the kind of environment that we create um, and so how the way I've been looking at it is that even before the digital became a part of architecture, there was a kind of pre-digital analog 3D world modeling that was being done, among others, with these kinds of models. And like Claudia said, um, there's a long backstory uh, to this research. I started researching models in twenty. 11 when I worked as a curatorial assistant at the D.A.M. in Frankfurt on this exhibition, which also produced this book. um, The curator, Oliver Elsa had a very specific vision of trying to study models as broadly as possible. Um, I'm showing you here a couple of installation shots just to show you the kind of models that we were looking at. Um, Just very briefly, you might recognize some of them, you might not. Uh, the top right corner is models that were made for Adolf Hitler. There's very few that survive, but some of those uh, very intricate wooden models are still there and we were able to show those. Um, the top left shows more of these kinds of 60s, 70s study models and these like modular systems. And then at the bottom left, you see a very iconic model by an architect, uh, Charles Moore, a postmodern architect who equally used models to explore his own ideas. Um, And on the bottom right you see a model of the German architecture museum in Frankfurt, which of course uh, was equally as interesting because it shows the way that this uh, museum was built into an old villa and then kind of is a house within a house. So that's kind of the background um, of this big survey show of 20th century architecture models. And what this show proved to us was that there's so much that we don't know about models, um, especially as regards their makers, the way they were made, the reason for why certain makers chose a specific material, um, but also pertaining to the larger historical processes that influence changes in the way that models are being made. And that are still current day developments that we, we are seeing right now happening with 3D modeling uh, currently seeing with artificial intelligence. So in many ways we realized we just don't know enough um, about models. And working on this exhibition was also the first time uh, that we encountered Theodore Conrad, who is the model maker who ended up being uh, the focus of the book. Um, You see on the right a model of Lever House, which is this very iconic 1950s post-war office building in New York and As we uh, loaned this work from the Museum of Modern Art, we also found out that the maker was called Theodore Conrad and that kind of started this research uh, for me personally. um, Because we were very fascinated by the way it was made and how intricate this model was. But again, there was very little information available. So as part of uh, the research, I found his family, who was still living in New Jersey at the time, and who told me that there's a large private collection in a basement uh, that includes models, drawings, photos, business files, everything, essentially. Um, And that is what this book is about. Um, When I first saw this collection in the summer of 2013, I went to Jersey City and I walked through this archive and essentially just started cataloging everything because there was no way uh, through this. other than cataloging it, and trying to find some key projects that would be helpful in understanding how this person had worked, um, and what the circumstances were under which an aspiring architect in the 1920s uh, changed course and eventually became America's, North America's, most well-known model makers who had a Rolodex full of clients that extended from the east to the west coast, from Chicago to Texas, a person who eventually won a medal from the American Institute of Architects and who would later be called the quote unquote Dean of Models. So someone who became incredibly famous among an incredibly small group of people, um, but who in 2013 had essentially been forgotten. So when I started out, these models and papers were crammed in the basement. Um, They were quite well preserved, but hardly in a condition that made it easy to uh, study them. And so, as an aside, I spent several years lobbying on behalf of this collection, trying to find museums that would take them, Um, and a few years later, they ended up at the Avery Archives at Columbia University, so they are available for further research. Um, And as part of this archive, there's another person who is incredibly important and who I will be talking about later on, and that person is uh, Louis Checkman a photographer who ended up specializing in photographing models, architectural models, um, and whose work proved invaluable for this kind of understanding because one of the things I realized very early on is that when we research models and we talk about models, most of the time we actually talk about photos of models and not models themselves. So this kind of translation between these different architectural media um, and their potential has been uh, very interesting to me personally. So both of these archives are incredibly valuable because they allow us a glimpse uh, into this kind of architectural practice that is rarely ever documented and preserved. And uh, when the book came out, I published a lot of the images that came out of these archives. So again, mostly model photos, already interpretations of models, not just models. And you can kind of already see the development of uh, models that this person had gone through from cardboard models on the top left to a lot of more intricate and um, highly sophisticated miniatures that became very popular in the 1950s and 60s. And so what I hope to show you in the next couple of minutes is the potency and the potential of architectural models as agents in modeling a specific kind of world and a specific kind of worldview um, in a pre-digital area. Among many other stories, Theodore Conrad's archive tells the story of the so-called miniature boom in North America, which was a term that was invented by uh, architectural critic and journalist uh, Jane Jacobs, who later became very famous for her book, The Death and Life of the Great American Cities, Um, But at the time she was still working as a journalist and she uh, wrote a text called the miniature boom that summed up a development that had started sometime in the 1930s and peaked sometimes in the 1950s, which uh, described this surge in architectural modeling at that time and These models were significant because they were using new materials They were using new fabrication techniques and they were made by increasing numbers of model makers that hadn't existed And so the question to me was what was driving this kind of movement? Why all of a sudden were people starting to make a lot more models than had existed previously? Um, And as one of the incubators of this particular development, New York uh, assembled a lot of the actors in this particular uh, development. Uh, You can see up here a couple of those major players. On the top left, uh, Theodore Conrad's employees, which was in itself not just him building those models, but a workshop that included up to 20, 25 people at some point. Um, And what I was looking at when I was studying his material was, um, again, a professional network of people, so architects, model makers, renderers, photographers, who were co-creating this architecture, not necessarily one profession serving the others, and that was definitely a new thing that was happening since the late 19th century. Another thing that I was looking at was uh, a material revolution that uh, changed the way that models were made, and which saw its beginning also in the 1920s and 1930s. And lastly, uh, development that was a shift in the use of architectural media that again happened around the same time and led away from very lavish renderings that were uh, being used until the 1920s to three-dimensional objects and their representation in other media such as photos and magazines and exhibitions that would use those models for other purposes than they were originally meant. And so all of these other media have augmented the epistemological potential of models as 3D objects, um, foreshadowing a lot of the movements that happened through uh, computational design since the 1960s. And to connect this to the title of the talk in recent years, the idea of world modeling has become a very popular catchphrase for all kinds of, uh, you know, types of entertainment from computer game, to television series, to books, uh, to other forms of storytelling that create these large-scale elaborate worlds that often include a wealth of detail, historical information, fictitious rules and regulations, supporting characters, so creating an entire world that often has an architectural setting as well. And I'm just showing you here a couple of recent examples that I'm sure you know. Um, that have taken this to the extreme as worlds that are, as in the case of Game of Thrones, uh, modeled first in writing, then modeled through a TV series, and then taken out of context and taken into other modeling um, environments, such as Minecraft in this case, uh, where you had an entire virtual architecture studio that was recreating something that was already a recreation of something else. Um, And the same could be argued for the set that was built for the Barbie movie. Um, Again, as a physical manifestation of a much larger world and story that was set in this particular kind of model. So it's no wonder that the term world modeling uh, has entered architectural practices um, very quickly because it does describe techniques for creating not just representations of singular objects, but tools for envisioning a future or fictitious Uh, built environment that ultimately reflects back on the world that we inhabit at some point. And to just show you uh, one example that to me brings that home very easily is uh, the so-called world, archipelago in Dubai, which was and still continues to be this gigantic building project that was never finished that is a group of islands that resemble the map of the world. They're man-made, human-made islands. Um, and each of those islands was supposed to be developed to represent a certain kind of fictitious national identity, so that would, would have been a Swedish village, I believe, and a German village and something. You know, a very touristy kind of approach to nationality and culture and, and all of that. Um, but what's interesting about it is also the way that it's being presented as if it's this kind of computer game type uh, setting that we can just create. So it's just a world that's being modeled and eventually it exists in reality. And so while this term uh, has become a lot more prevalent recently with the availability of digital technologies, uh, rendering engines now through AI, which is doing exactly the same thing in many cases, um, this in no way is a new phenomenon. And I'm just showing you again another example of how this kind of world modeling has existed for a long time in the digital realm. Uh, Cornell in perspective, bottom left, was one of the very early ideas of 3D shaded rendering that um, you still had to use a lot of trickery to make you believe that you're actually inhabiting this world, and that's only gotten a lot better over the years, as you can see in these images, I hope. Um, But again, it's not something that's limited to today's practices, um, because what I hope to show you today is that the traditional 3D Architectural models through their physical attributes, their materiality, their scale, uh, their degree of detail, as well as their setting and photography, that all these tra- traditional models were an earlier form of world modeling. That in some cases had le- has led to very widespread applications um, of proposed architectural ideas and construction constructive ideas that have ultimately influenced and shaped the built environment we live in today. And that, I hope, uh, will come out, is based on the very substance of these media that are chosen for world modeling. In this case, mainly models made for public presentation, so not models that we would normally look at as uh, evidence of an architect's thinking or design thinking in general, but models that were specifically made to be shown to a lay audience in order to influence them in favor of a specific kind of design so in a way the way that we model things the essence of what i'm trying to say here is the way we make models can make or break the cohesion of the world we're trying to sell and envision in the early days of architectural models and photography there were two different ways of looking at uh, models one was to document models as an object which is what you're seeing here so you're looking down on a big model uh, but you can clearly see the edges of the models plate you can clearly see it's an object it has a certain size it has a certain relation to you as a person It, it is an object that's made and that's visible as such what became very popular in the 1920s was to start photographing models as buildings, so pretending that it's not a small scale object you're looking at, but an actual building. And that is something that uh, has led to tremendous changes in the way that models were built. Um, For one, it required models to get bigger and bigger because the view cameras back in the day had a certain size and they needed a certain size of the object they photographed in order to make it look realistic. So it meant that models became larger and more detailed, because they had to be larger. Uh, They had to be more detailed because they were larger. Um, Another thing that started to change was that models started to include a lot more props, so trees, cars, sometimes even figurines, although that was something that was often avoided, because it also kind of destroyed the illusion. Um, It meant that models were lighted as buildings, so there was only one light, the sun. Um, It meant that models had backdrops and that models were increasingly also created to, uh, excuse me, to uh, allow for openings so the camera could be inserted into those models. This is the kind of documentary photography that you would have seen as a photo in a magazine, where you could clearly see that something's off. It's an object that is set in front of a white background or a black background, and it clearly is visible as that kind of object. When magazines in the 1930s became interested in these types of projects, they were requesting very different photos, similar to the one on the top right, where you can't see the edges anymore and where you can't really tell where the model ends. You don't know necessarily that it's a model because it has this very low human vantage point where your eye is already in the image. Uh, In the image before, your god looking down And in this image, you're in the model. You're kind of situated in a very different place. And what you see on the left is how these images were created. So models were built not as full replicas anymore, but as certain views that they wanted to take. And everything else that wasn't visible to the camera, to the lens, didn't matter. So sometimes you had blank walls. You had unfinished models or models that you could disassemble because the photos were really the most important thing about these objects. And so this, in a way, led to a movement that required architects to show the most important viewpoints or vistas of a building as it was being planned because that became a focus for clients as well as architects. Um, and I'm showing you here the model of the Leverhouse House that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, which was very clearly planned that way. Um, House sits on Park Avenue and it's quite remarkable because it's one of the first buildings that is perpendicular to the street rather than having the facade along the street. And that was one of the main selling points of this uh, design for the client. And you can see in the first two images on the left that this was definitely envisioned in the building because of the model photos uh, that were then later on replicated in the photos of the actual building. So uh, very, clear influence of the model on the design but also on the way that the client was making their decisions because that's the kind of world they were hoping to create. I don't know why this is here. We're just gonna skip forward. So by offering such a close look at the model, the camera forced models to become even more perfect because that's what we were trying to look at and that's what many of the clients were looking for. And what I'm trying to uh, show you in the remaining minutes are two examples of how this has shaped over shaped over time and developed over time. And the first of these examples is Rockefeller Center. On March 6, 1931, a photo in the New York Times, and this is a quote from that article, aroused the public as no other architectural undertaking has ever done and gave New Yorkers a subject for controversial conversation lasting far beyond the conventional nine days of newspaper publicity. And this is the photo that was published. This contested image was a black and white photo of a plaster model of Rockefeller Center, which was about to transform Midtown Manhattan from a residential area into a new city center. This model, here is the actual photo of this model, It presented the new structures as very geometric masses. Uh, There were windows carved into the exterior, but there were no other details. There was no indication of material, there was no indication of scale really in this model. And it was photographed with an angle high above with the edges of the model's plate very clearly visible, which marked it as a very small scale object. And even though the Times had assured its readers that the interiors of this building were, quote, lavish, and that the oval building that you see facing Fifth Avenue would resemble what they called a jeweled powder box on a dressing table. The critics were very flowery in their denunciation, calling it a hat box or an oil can, which was a jab at John D. Rockefeller's involvement with uh, Standard Oil. In hindsight, uh, the public outcry over the alleged ugliness of Rockefeller Center may not just have been caused by its sleek modern appearance. Underneath, it seems that there's a more fundamental shift in the use of architectural media for presentations in public that hadn't been successfully introduced to a general public in 1931. So what I'm trying to say is that these photos of the model were defying architectural conventions for proposals in public. And so the model and the model photos you see here were an isolated and very misunderstood novelty, which was exacerbated by the fact that the New York Times did not reproduce the accompanying large-scale renderings that had been presented to the journalists um, during the press conference. Until the 1930s, renderings were the main way of presenting a design to the public. Uh, Models and model photos did exist at the time, Um, but they were rarely shown to communicate a design to a general audience. There was a slow change that had set in in the 1920s when some architects began to favor models over these types of drawings that you see here, which kicked loose a debate between architects and critics um, that can be best summarized under the keywords of faking versus alleged honesty. And models uh, the advocates argued were more apt and more honest because they could convey a three-dimensional idea of a building better than drawings, which were allegedly faked, uh, which meant they left out unfavorable views or embellished designs to convince clients. Renderings had themselves been undergoing very tremendous changes in the 1920s. Uh, I'm just showing you here an example of one of those changes. turning away from very lavish drawings as they were common in the 19th century to these type of what we call chiaroscuro, so these black and white uh, drawings that have these intense shadows and these intense spotlights on individual objects. Um, And so these highly seductive charcoal drawings like these uh, presented a very dramatic take on a building's mass rather than a very detailed overview. And renderers allegedly were more interested in the essence of a building, uh, its most important features than actual accuracy. These images, um, there's another example, uh, were often drawn with very strong lights and shadows emitting details which made the case in point for them being called fakes. And I'm showing you here a very bad Uh, example, which comes out of uh, set design for the theater, which shows that this was a uh, general idea in the 1920s that was also used in photography. Up until then, architectural modeling had relied on a myriad of materials, uh, cardboard, wood, modeling, clay, plaster. Those were the most commonly used, and each of them had distinct advantages to producing small-scale objects. Uh, Cardboard was cheap and lightweight and easy to use. Uh, It could be painted with watercolors to represent facades. Wood was more sturdy, but required an architect to have a separate room uh, for, you know, to keep the dust and the wood shavings out of the drawing room. And plaster and clay had lent themselves to very sculptural work, and which is what was used for these models. Um, And there were certain architects who specialized in particular modeling materials because they were specialized in using models at the time. Uh, One of the other changes in the 1920s was that the New York Zoning Law had been introduced in 1916 which regulated buildings and their heights and required buildings of the height of Rockefeller Center to be designed with setbacks. So it means that the facade that faces the street can't go up 100 stories, it has to set back at some point to let the light fall down to the sidewalks so people don't walk in these shadows. That was one of the big problems of lower Manhattan um, as they started building these larger skyscrapers. And Rockefeller Center is a great example for this zoning law because it is designed exactly using this rule and that's essentially what determined the shape of this building. Model photos uh, had an equally long history as drawings and models. Um, I already showed you, excuse me, the uh, type of photo that used the same techniques as the drawings. Um, but by the time the model, the Rockefeller Center controversy unfolded in 1931, the first and foremost task of most model photos, aside from just recording a design, was to highlight a building's mask and to obscure its materiality, as you can see here. The photos of Rockefeller Center then treated the model not as an object. Uh, sorry, treated the model as an object and not as a building and they lacked the refinement and illusion that the renderings um, by giving away its very small scale as you can see by the edges of the model plate. For architects who had already experimented with these kinds of models after the New York zoning law, these models were a logical continuation of their work with design models and presentation drawings as they translated these effects into model photos. The public, though, had very differing expectations because their eyes were not trained on these models, but on these very lavish renderings that they were used to seeing. And so because they were unaccustomed both to the design and the way it was being presented as a very overly simplistic mass in the photographic translation, they dismissed the design. For them, the gap between what a model could represent, and what was expected of a photo or rendering, was just diverging too much. And now to the second part. Collier's House of Glass, real as life and just as beautiful. On May 6, 1939, so almost exactly eight years after Rockefeller Center published the photos, The lifestyle magazine Collier's published a set of model photos for a house of glass that was under construction at the 1939 New York World's Fair in Flushing, Queens. This time, these photos that you see here were accompanied by a caption that read, the talk provoking house of glass at the World's Fair will be finished about the middle of May. We couldn't let you wait, so here's a Collier's model real as life and just as beautiful. Far from conjuring up memories of the earlier public debacle with Rockefeller Center, these model photos now necessitated a statement to ensure that readers did not confuse them with the actual building. So what happened in only eight years? Sometime in 1936, the history of architectural model making had changed irrevocably. That year, two companies, Roman Haas and DuPont independently introduced a translucent plastic to the American market under the brand names Plexiglas and Lucite. And even though this material did not initially attract any large-scale attention from designers, it almost immediately struck a chord with architectural model makers who had emerged as an independent profession in the 1930s. And because these model makers were looking to uh, lower costs and also be faster with the way they built models, they had already purchased uh, new power tools that were available in the 1930s, and these new materials uh, lend themselves to being machined uh, to represent new building materials. Especially with the introduction of large glass panes, which was a design feature of the modernism in the 1930s, And the exposure of the steel frame in modern architecture, neither of the previous modeling materials, plaster, wood, cardboard, lend themselves to ideally modeling this kind of new architecture. And that's where plexiglass came in. It was ideal both for representing glass, but also any kind of opaque uh, wall feature that you might be looking at, because it could be spray painted to show that kind of that kind of exterior. It also lends itself to being assembled as miniatures, so not building models like Rockefeller Center was, carved out of a block of uh, plaster, or rather uh, modeling clay, or built up as a shell in cardboard, but as an actual assembled miniature that in some ways resembled actual architecture, even though that's also not how you build a building. And plexiglass, like I just said, uh, lend itself to representing uh, different levels of opacity and translucence. And that's exactly what the new architecture was looking for, and especially the Pittsburgh House of Glass at the New York World's Fair. So realism in these images meant the simulation of a built reality, a desire that was uh, held both by architects and model makers to present models as if they were buildings. Similar attempts had been made in the 1920s already, and uh, surprisingly, the architect who was responsible for Rockefeller Center had already published an article in the early 1920s uh, where he said what the aim of these kinds of photos would be, and that is, I'm quoting him, what we do want to know and show the client is what the building will look like when seen as most people will see it, from the street and at no great distance. And this became possible only in 1936 with the introduction of plexiglass uh, to fulfill this kind of promise and achieve the kind of realism in model photos and an utmost accuracy as a prerequisite to modeling um, as the slightest mistake would destroy the illusion by giving away the model's materiality and its making. So I'm just setting these models next to each other as a comparison. Um, Unlike Rockefeller Center, the model for the House of Glass was an accurate preview of the building, recreating the main achievement of the full-size House of Glass, which was its translucence in the photos of the model. Built and published for a mainstream audience that until recently had rejected models and photos as a preview of a building, it set the scene for a boom in similar models, and model photos that after the war trickled back into purely architectural contexts, uh, changing architectural design more fundamentally. And I would argue that in some ways these types of photos as they were translated into lifestyle magazines in the 30s, 40s, and 50s are what created the post-war world of modernism because they sold clients uh, from housewives to corporate clients on the idea of modernism through the photos of these models. And I'm just showing you here two examples of these types of photos as they were published uh, during that time, not just as a way of selling the architecture, but of selling a world, a world in which it's always summer, the trees are always grown in, there's always a car out front, which was something that not everyone could afford at that time, so a world of prosperity that many people were aspiring to, but not everyone could afford. And just to illustrate that point a little bit more, these were the types of photos that were widely published that sold the idea of modernism to the average American. Um, Photos where you are unable, unless you know, to say that this was taken using a model rather than the actual building. As with architectural photography with these models, Model photos were taken mostly during a fictional summertime, although, as you will see in my last image, some did also model fall. Um, They always pretended that they were taking a long time after the house was finished and inhabited and after vegetation had grown in. Model images had the great advantage that they could cater to the need for realistic images of inhabited houses before the house was even built. As color photography became more important for magazines in the post-war years, the colors of the model and the accurate representation of surfaces, textures, materials were highly influential and had to be accounted for in the model-making process. The new materials, that I just mentioned, plexiglass, and their abilities to represent almost any building material or surface at any scale could withstand the close look of the camera. As such, model photos were often more perfect than photos of the actual building, which made them more reliable and faster to obtain, not just for magazines, but for architects in general. They're virtually indistinguishable from the actual finished building. And so in selling a post-war world, these images are comparable to world modeling on a much larger scale, I believe, um, especially as we see it today on any kind of platform that we might be looking at, be it Instagram, ArcDaily, or any other architectural platform. And it doesn't really matter if they're 3D modeled using a uh, computer or now AI generated, their power cannot be underestimated. There's a lot more to be studied to understand what worlds these models actually create, not just physically, but also as a society, and that's something where I believe the post-war world and these types of models hold a lot of potential for understanding, because what I've showed you so far is only the world that has the car in front of the house, but we haven't really spoken about suburbanization and the kind of uh, core nuclear family that stood behind these models that were also sold by these images, which were implicit as a world that was being modeled through the architecture, but that most people probably didn't see at the time they were looking at these images. And with that, um, I will stop. There's a lot more to speak about. um, And I look forward to your comments. Thank you so much, um, Teresa. That
0: was really a very, very insightful and intriguing um, talk. so maybe, I don't know if there are already questions in the audience, but if not, I um, might start with one. I was like particularly um, taken by this notion also of fake, or maybe let's call it pretense, um, that can define a scenery um, where someone sort of acts in reality as if they were in a fictional world or where a fictional world reacts as if it takes place like in reality. And at the same time also I thought that apparently um, there is some kind of zeitgeist, no? And, uh, And I think it would be And also, I felt that many of the photographs that you have shown um, from the 50s, uh, they owe a lot to film aesthetics as well, and also to maybe hyper-realism in in the arts. And I was wondering um, how much awareness was there within um, architects that they were so much sort of owing to other kind of aesthetics or the zeitgeist,
1: and I was wondering whether you have any thoughts on that. Um, I think there's always crossovers. Um, one of the models I showed that had these very strong uh, shadows and lights on them—that was a theater model, so there's definitely a crossover between that and the. 1910s, 1920s, but yeah, of course, I mean, there's always these kinds of um, cross-fertilizations of of different kinds of art forms. Um, I think that that idea of realism came in really through this representation of a fictional future for these uh, lifestyle magazines, Um, because a lot of those uh, houses that were depicted were meant to be sold So these magazines didn't just publish the photos, but they also published uh, the floor plans of the houses that you could buy, and then you could go to an architect and have them customize the house for your site. Um, So in in a way, with this clear intention of selling things to a decidedly lay audience, this idea of realism came in as a way of convincing them that this was the way to go. the idea of finishing them and cutting off the edges so you can't really see that this is a model, I think was a way of trying to convince them that this is possible, um, which I think are techniques that are being used in photography in general and in also obviously movies. Um, but I think it was slightly different in that way that it was trying to um, kind of suck you into a world um, that you could buy. It was for sale, it was a world for sale, ultimately. Um, Yeah, and one more question
0: I have. Um, Reading your book, I was also uh, very interested in that conflicting nature, and you also mentioned it in the talk, between the photograph uh, versus the architectural model, versus the proper model, Uh, and not only but also there I felt it was very interesting not only in regard to the archive and to archiving purposes but also in regard to representation and I was wondering whether you could say a little more on that
1: um. yeah that's a huge for me something I've been thinking about for many years especially researching historical models many of which are gone so the only thing you have is the photo and you know, trying to find out more about how these models were made, why they were made, how they were made, and then ending up with a representation of an object that already has, you know, that's already interpreting it in a certain way and that's already trying to make me believe certain things. So one way around that uh, was that I was incredibly lucky to find some drawings that had been made for the object. So the architect would have designed the building, delivered the drawings to the model maker, and the model maker would have made a completely different set of drawings, usually at the scale of the object that was being built, um, that indicated decision-making processes that related to that translation from drawings of a building or designs of a building to the model. And in a way, photos then are the next step, right? You're translating the 3D object back into a two-dimensional image. And of course, you're editing out certain things again for that. So to me, these processes of translation ultimately became very interesting because they documented the essence of what was trying, what they were trying to communicate ultimately, right? Because if you're building a model of, of something, you have to edit things out, right? You're, if you're building a model of this building, you're not gonna show uh, the lights or the wiring or the toilets or anything that you don't need. And so these processes of editing that that's kind of the core of what I think also is in those photos um, for me, yeah.
0: Yeah, so let's open the floor for questions.
2: Thank you for your nice presentation, Um, it was very interesting but uh, I guess you focused uh, mostly on the problem of um, photographs and uh, the relationship between models and photography. And I guess, uh, don't you think that uh, there are many uses of models? Um, uh, um, Architecture is a 3D art and modeling is a 3D art also and translating it to photographs is one of the uses, but not the only one. Uh, um, Architects present uh, models to... uh, Uh, discuss problems of mass, to discuss problems of light, and so on, uh, to decision-makers. And they have different uh, publics, not only the lay public, they have decision-makers, they have uh, politicians, they have uh, other architects and so on in front of them, and they have to deal with them. Uh, And the uh, model uh, is a very expensive uh, uh, thing, to um, deal with three-dimensional problems. And uh, photography is a different medium. And the translation uh, you talked about uh, in your last uh, comment, uh, the translation is always a translation. And uh, the translation is uh, not uh, very easy to do because uh, they try to uh, make a very expensive model to discuss problems which can't be tris- translate it into f- photography.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's different kinds of models. Um, and that type of modeling didn't make the other models go away, absolutely. Um, but I think what's interesting about these particular models in terms of world modeling is that they achieved something that a singular model that you make and leave in 3D and you walk around and you talk to your clients and you spend a lot of money on it, um, Might not achieve. And there's, you know, Rockefeller Center is a case of that not working. Um, And so I think what I've been trying to show is not that this is replacing the other kind of model, but that this has set the scene for people who then went to look at the actual model to understand the kind of world that that came from as a design.